Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts and Station Hill Press. If you want to reach us, email bc at stationhill.org. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network. We're live on WCAA and on the Pacifica Radio Network. We're available on most podcast venues. And that's all I got. Enjoy our show. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. So here we are again in the midst of our lives. It's uh, July of 2021. My name is Sam Truitt. I'm Sparrow. I'm Andrew McCarran. And we're here to continue our investigation of the Proverbs of Hell. And, um, you know, we'll just pick up where we left off. And maybe, Andrew, um, you wouldn't mind giving us this next sentence, I would this be next ha- proverb. I would be happy to read the next proverb. Folly oh, is the cloak of knavery. Right. Right. So the cloak of knavery is folly. I just looked up knavery if you want to know what it says. This is the American Heritage Dictionary of the English Language, third edition. Uh-huh. Knavery, dishonest or crafty dealing. Two, an instance of trickery or mischief. Mischief. And then the knave ultimately comes from the old English kanafa, meaning boy or male servant which leads one to think that at one time all servants, and for that matter, all boys, were uh, untrustworthy uh, tricksters. Uh-huh. Dishonest, well, also, crafty. you know, working-class heroes, yes. I guess, um, too, you know, in that being a servant to another person is a un- un- unlawful state. Yeah, an exploitative relationship. An unequal power relationship, as people now so inelegantly put it. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, definitely. So the um, I'm trying to understand it, though. I can't quite get my head around it. I know. I mean, the cloak of knavery. So that which hides knavery, the cloak, namely something that conceals knavery, I mean, it sounds like it's saying something like, oh, this person's acting like a big fool, acting like a dope who doesn't know anything, whereas in fact, deep down, he is a knave, an unprincipled, crafty fellow, to quote my dictionary. Um, So he's using the folly to trick you so that you don't notice that he's... uh, a bad, evil character. Oh. I mean, that's well, I guess, how... Like, 
Folly, folly means making a mistake. Lack of good sense or foolishness. Yeah, folly. I, I think um, uh, it's interesting to think about um, the semantics here, but I think the the larger takeaway for me is a more general comment on um, duplicity. Mm-hmm. Um, the two proverbs read together, folly is the cloak of knavery, and then shame is pride's cloak. Which is the next one, oh, yeah. The next, Which, uh, oh, well, let's, let's deal with it as a uh, couplet. Um, I so the next, the next proverb is shame is pride's cloak. I agree that they're obviously an interrelated and woven um, structure, both let alone intransitive verbs. The what? one before it is, if the fool would persist in his folly, he would become wise. That's right before folly is the cloak of knavery, which kind of, in a way, you could see it as a tercet or a triad these three statements that all seem to each one leads to the next yeah i'd be fine with that except that we already like expended a lot of um you know energy into establishing that if the fool would persist in his folly he would become wise you know as being linked up to the prior two proverbs but, you know, one can't escape what you're saying, namely, folly is outright um, repeated. Yeah. Right. And the fool who would persist in his folly would become wise seems, I think that's the one that's kind of easiest for us to understand in the modern world, that let's say you are, decide to be a complete alcoholic, a falling down drunk. And then eventually you figure it out. You, you get to the end of it. You realize that alcohol is kind of an illusion or you die of it. You know, either way, you kind of reach a certain saturation, you might say. I think, too, that uh, the fact that there's a, a likeness here, that the fool is being genuine to his character type, to his, to his self, to his fullness. Hmm. Um, by persisting in his, the fool who, the fool who would persist in his folly, if the fool would persist in his folly, he would become wise. Hmm. There is something about the, um, there's some authenticity there that the fool is being himself by persist, persisting in what is natural to him and therefore becomes wise through some sort of process. You know what I'm saying? Or is that hopelessly? Yeah, yeah, no, I know. It makes sense to me. And it's interesting that it says if, as if to imply it's very rare that usually the fool has his folly and then he immediately represses himself or hates himself or tries to yeah. stop his folly. He says, oh, I'm, a, I'm an idiot. I, I should stop drinking. I should stop gambling. I should stop all my vices. I've got to become a good person and therefore by stopping himself or herself uh, he stops the process of education in a sense. Yeah. Uh-huh. He, char- he's, he's stopped characterologically from evolving into like the, um, the uh, 
to the furthest parameter of, you know, um, his being, his consciousness. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, I can dig that. And I believe that there's also, to differentiate the one from the next, it would see, it would feels to me as though the fool persisting in his folly, that the fool believes in his folly, that it's a, that it has mm. to do with belief, mm. um, that that persistence is based on belief. Whereas the knave is adopting folly, the guise, the cloak of folly in yeah. order to persist in, in the knave's, um, intent which is to which is uh, you know i think to become a block in the in the system you know is to is to um hmm. is to you know i guess the knave lies cheats and steals and he disguises that as folly but he doesn't believe in the folly mm, i see it's just a uh the disguise, in a way. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's so hard not to talk about Donald Trump, you know, even though he's somewhat deposed at the moment. But, I mean, I can't think of folly as the cloak of knavery without thinking of Trump, and maybe also of Hitler, that Trump is basically poses as a stand-up comedian. You know, he does these big rallies. He makes a series of jokes. He says to Putin, steal uh, uh, Hillary's emails, please. I want you to and give them to me. And then um, and then Putin does it. And uh, and then people accuse Trump of knavery, of doing something, you know, really kind of treasonous, asking our enemy to steal his opponent's emails. And then Trump says, oh, no, 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 I was just making a joke. I was just being a fool. Folly is my cloak. Just mm -hmm. look at the folly. Don't look at, don't look at the neighbory underneath, you know. Definitely. And, you know, he's kind of great at um, using folly as a cloak. Uh -huh. I would say, Rudy, his personal lawyer, the, the now disbarred in New York and also the District of Columbia, his personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, is a less successful example of this, I think. Oh, someone who tries to use kind of foolishness. Yeah, I think that he does uh, parody in some ways his boss, Trump, mm. or tries to, um, but um, there's less power there. There's less, I think, um, seductive. Yeah, he's less... Seductive. That. He's less appealing. He's less funny. Yeah. Uh -huh. He's less charismatic. But I first saw it with George W. Bush where I felt like, you know, George W. Bush, that the, the, uh, 9-11 is happening. The World Trade Center is tumbling down and he's reading a story about a goat to a bunch of kindergarten students. And, uh, he, Someone comes in, interrupts him, brings him a note, and he just keeps reading the story of the goat. And he's just like, I'm just a simple fool, cowboy from Texas. I just want to go down to my ranch and clear some of that brush. 
I'm just an ordinary guy like you and me. You know, I, I'm not a villain. I'm not. Uh, I don't have any secret fascistic plans to dominate the world with my new world order. I'm. Uh, I'm just a dope. Mm-hmm. It's like it's you know it's this this. We're living in an era where the fools and the knaves have kind of merged, and you can't quite distinguish. Yeah, and Trump surrounded himself. He had a whole cabinet, Betsy DeVos. Many of them were billionaires. They all seemed inept, stupid, and yet also venal and, and cruel. And you couldn't distinguish when were they being stupid, when were they being cruel. Maybe it's just the nature of evil that, that you, you never can quite know uh, when someone is being deliberately uh, exploitative and when they're just being innocently foolish. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think these are uh, all excellent points. And I also feel that the echo of the next proverb, you know, shame yeah. is pride's cloak, makes perfect sense, you know? There is what I feel shame, like, well, who is feeling shame? There's a taste of ego to that, you know, like mm-hmm. that I guess I hold myself to some higher standard and, um, you know, that, that that's a position of some kind of pride, I guess. At the same time, you know, sociopaths are incapable of feeling shame, mm-hmm. right? I'm not sure William Blake was, um, you know, aware of that kind of distinction. But su- supposedly sociopathology is a, is fairly endemic to our human. Yes. Say the pathology that I believe characterized the late administration. That it's out there. I mean, shame was, you know, within the Germanic heroic ethic, was the one thing that kept the tribe and kept society together is that mm. you acted in order not to mm. bring shame to your name, to your family, to yourself. You know, yeah. the high mark of that system was, you know, to have your name be remembered, um, mm. you know, for heroic deeds. Um, and then the nader is to have your name remembered for ignoble deeds. Mm. Yeah, my wife and I are watching this Netflix show, uh, Midnight Diner. It takes place in Tokyo. Oh, it's about dude. a diner that's open st- at, from midnight to, I guess, eight in the morning. I forget. Maybe he doesn't tell you when it closes. And, um, so it's a very Japanese show, though it's made for Netflix. And it seems like people are constantly bowing to each other, deeply apologizing, you know, Bearing their breast in shame. It seems like a culture that is obsessed with this, what you're talking about, Sam, this idea of besmirching somehow your name or being seen as arrogant or selfish. 
Yeah, I would I would say two things. One is I've seen Midnight Diner. I saw some episodes and it's very virtuous. Like you that is the nature of some neighborhood uh you know late night spots, you know, for eating and drinking. And um I thought it was very charming. You know, good show. And then um you know, the other thing is in that genuflection within Japanese society mm. um, and that sense of bowing and scraping and apologizing and all that, there is very obdurate pride. You know, yeah. there is a lot of still this profound sense of, eh, I don't want to call it superiority because actually I think the Japanese are superior <laughs> um, but of, um, of real self-possession, you know, beautiful. It's a, it's an interesting contradiction. And I think, you know, we have to be open, which, you know, in many times in this kind of proverbial structure, there's a lot of emphasis on like, pow, you know, this is the way it is. This is the way it is. You know, there's a kind of, um, move toward defining things. And I got to tell you, I think that the truth is far more ambiguous and, um, you know, much more sort of the presence of both in a kind of um, convex, concave, and also sort of actually like a kind of dance, you know? You mean these proverbs? Well, the proverbs of hell, I well, think, do that a little bit by, by the juxtapositions. Mm -hmm. Even though he's saying in this definitive way, folly is the cloak of knavery, mm -hmm. it is still by the proximate uh, proverbs before and after it, and and a little bit by the syntax. Dig you, it. You, you, the certainty is somewhat diminished. I think. Yeah, obviated. And again, I you know hold to this feeling or sense that the proverbs of hell to a certain extent are a little bit of a send-up yeah um, not only of swedenborg but also of christianity and the whole idea of religion um you know the espousing and fixing of certain truths that then one uh believes in and then follows um I keep thinking because oftentimes all those things, all that kind of fundamentalist um, gesture, um, ends in not dealing with reality. This, yeah. um, this, um, these proverbs remind me of a shaking of the foundations, um, mm. shaking of the foundations, reminiscent of Martin Luther's thesis. Huh. Nailed onto the um, <laughs> cathedral door at Wittenberg, in hmm. that they do, um, when thought about as a composite, they do uh, upend conventional moralities and Christian doctrine and um, so much of the uh, normative, what 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 past is normative um, social moray and custom and religious practice. There's mm -hmm. something about them that work um, to shake those foundations. Dig it. That was and in 1517, by the uh, way. Yeah, 1517. Yeah. Uh, 
Oh, that's when the theses were nailed. Yeah, and I but I do think that William Blake, to a certain extent, um, his influence relative to Martin Luther, uh, you know, this is speculative, but I think William Blake and, and the Proverbs of Hell and his work have, have had a more revolutionary and more gunpowder, <laughs> you know, more gunpowder, even taking into account the Hundred Years' War, et cetera, et cetera, than Luther at this point, certainly. Hmm. Is that true? There are all these Protestant churches, you know, around the yeah, world. Yeah, I mean, the pro- Protestantism yeah. still seems extremely vigorous. You know, yeah, why, why is that, Andrew? Well, um, you know, there's still a an attempt to remain faithful to Catholicity, um, I think, but um, there were things that Luther believed needed to be um, upended that were too repressive um, or oppressive. Um, I think uh, Luther was much more um, pro-body than uh, much of the uh, Catholic theology, pro-sexuality in terms of allowing clerical marriage, um, advocating um, uh, sex before marriage and circumstances. He advocated sex before marriage? Well, he didn't um, see it as some sort of venal, uh, sorry, some sort of mortal sin. That uh, I guess uh, he remained um, critical of it theologically, but um, devalued its um, seriousness. Hmm. Did that include, did that include, Andrew, concubescence? What does that mean, concubescence? Concubines? Concubinage? I I believe it's a polite term. No, maybe not. First, you know, I guess sexual congress. Yeah, it is. Um, I just, you know, in Luther's writing, he just had more of a place for that in um, God's design, um, based upon Hmm. my memory of um, church history. But in, in subsequently interpreted, I believe, in Episcopalian practice, um, you're forbidden to have sexual intercourse before marriage. Yeah, but if it happens, you're not, you know, you're not going to be burned in hell. Yeah. That, that there's a fundamental understanding of the human person as a sexual being. But Catholicism sees uh, sexuality you know, at least in theory, as a positive thing, and in marriage, and I mean, it's not only for procreation. I think. Well, that would be uh, that would be more modern. I um, you, the Pope um, John Paul II, the Polish Pope, who died oh. in 2005. Um, his theological work prior to becoming Pope was um, on the um, holiness of. Uh, sex within marriage, even when it wasn't um, pointed teleologically toward procreation, and that mm. that that was um, a sort of, uh, believe it or not, um, a radical argument uh. um, in the mid twentieth century, mid twentieth century Catholic theology. Um, mm. Did he yeah. tie the state of sexual excitation or of ecstasy, I guess, 
with a divine spark or touch? Was that um, yeah, part of his does. thesis? Yeah, that there was, you know, a, a, a spark of, uh, of gnosis there, of something higher. And beyond that, his focus was uh, horizontal, so to speak, literally and figuratively, um, in terms of bringing two people together into a covenant, um, into a shared mm -hmm. self um, mm -hmm. that was uh, into solidarity, you know, physical solidarity, solidarity of pleasure and touch that um, was inherently virtuous from a moral perspective. But, but the uh -huh. Catholics uh, followed the rhythm method. So if they followed the rhythm method, that means they're having sex for some other reason than procreation, right? Yeah. Um, but that, you know, that, that's much more recent than you might imagine. Wow. In, terms, in terms of like a systematic articulation of the church's position on this stuff. It's largely a response to the sexual revolution. Uh -huh. I mean, like the church's fascination with abortion, for example, like it just is not really part of um, social teaching on the 19th century and before. It's pretty, it's pretty recent. Yeah, abortion is pretty is a recent. And I think the, the Protestants becoming anti-abortion is even more recent. That's like in, in the 70s. That's what I read recently. Yeah, I believe that it was a political decision to seize on abortion as an issue that could um, galvanize a significant portion of the electorate, is my understanding. Getting back to my earlier point, I just think that these, uh, these proverbs shape the foundations. I, I, they are sort of like proverbial theses or aphorisms and they're they're playful and the, the syntax is disruptive in interesting ways so the cadences of the language mm. i think participate in the shaking of the foundations the ambiguity the semantic ambiguity as well as rationalists we really do want to land on the definitive meaning but we can't i mean i think you know i would think about this today like because I've been reading a lot of kind of popular history lately, and I read that book, recently read this book, 1776, by, I think his name was David McCullough. You know, he's a kind of a major historian, but he writes a very popular way. So I'm sort of, and now I'm lately reading some book about Jack the Ripper. So I'm like trying to put my mind into these different historical circumstances, you know, while listening to these books often on uh, audio and you know it's hard to imagine what it was like in 1789 i mean these these uh, proverbs first of all calling them proverbs of hell is still provocative in 2021 uh -huh. but in 1789 or whenever he wrote them i mean it must have been like a bomb you know just calling mm -hmm. them that and then also just the effect that they just must have been so out of control compared to like, you know, when everybody, basically everybody in the world believed in uh, religion. Ah, uh -huh. believed like, in heaven and hell. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing I wanted to, to say that, you know, heaven and hell is, is built with stones of law and with mm. bricks of religion that the brothels 
are built with bricks of religion. Sparrow, maybe we should, maybe you wouldn't mind reading the next proverb because I think it relates to what we've been talking about. The next proverb meaning prisons are built with stones of law, brothels with bricks of religion. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That is crazy. (laughs) You know, (laughs) the big standout word, I guess, is brothel. Um, (laughs) And what he may mean by that um and it's such a um to be honest it's such a um brazen and eternal it, it's it's a true it, it's actually true i believe this is a true statement mm-hmm. it's hard not to see it as true mm-hmm. which the brothels with bricks of religion prisons are built with stones of law brothels with bricks of religion definitely kind of interesting that the difference between stones and bricks that, uh, you know, when you first read it, you don't notice that they're not completely parallel. Prisons uh-huh. are built with stones because stones are stronger. They keep the prisoners inside the prison. I'm just thinking this offhand. Yeah. Whereas bricks, you don't have to keep the, uh, the prostitutes inside the brothels. They're there more or less voluntarily. So. You don't need the the same kind of strong stone. You just need bricks, which are stones are are naturally occurring. Bricks are made by humans. Mm-hmm. The way religions yeah, are made so, by humans. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me personally, when I read stones of law, I kind of see that as echoing what I said just a moment ago regarding fundamentalism mm. and putting certain ideas uh, before reality, you know, before circumstances on the ground, on the street, you know, uh, in the circumstances of 1789, in which there was extreme um, poverty in the city of London as everywhere. And, um, you know, the idea of, um, you know, my belief is that, um, you know, fundamentalism is the, is, is the key to what we've been living through dynamically in the last, um, 30 years, um, Hmm. you know, since the Bush administration and, uh, first Bush, Bush administration, but certainly with the first Iraq war, with the falling of the towers, that's a circumstance in which you have a group of people who believe that um, the upholding of certain ideas are worth um, massive slaughter, you know, not only the bringing down of the towers, which was an act of fundamentalism, hmm. And, you know, uh, uh, yeah, but then also our um, the kind of destruction that we rained down on Iraq and then and then subsequently on Afghanistan, et cetera. Yeah. Hard to know how much it's a religious fundamentalist issue. I mean, I think in a way, uh, the folly is the cloak of knavery, the uh, the folly of Christian fundamentalism or now it's called evangelical 
Christianity, that might be the cloak that capitalism or imperialism uses. You know, I don't know how yeah. much they're doing it, you know, how much they're conquering Iraq. I think they're conquering Iraq because they want the oil. I mean, and, you know, it's a simplistic Marxist logic, but it seems as true as that they honestly think they're on some kind of mission from God. To liberate, you know, right, to bring freedom. Yeah, well, for them, freedom, democracy, capitalism are all interchangeable. They really believe this, I think. And Catholic and Christianity maybe is is somehow in there too that they're gonna maybe Christianize these Muslims. I don't know if that's an honest, a realistic goal, but it might be. A, or it's the war between the two civilizations, the war between our God and their God, might be some part of it. But I think mostly it's just there was nobody to stop us, so we'll take it. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, I mean, you know, my, my take is more just simple, is putting ideas over suffering, over physical mm. um, and other forms of suffering. Stone, stones and bricks are the substance of walls. Mm -hmm. You know, the prison walls, geopolitical walls, walls at borders, the mm. walls that divide one part of the psyche from another part, internal mm. walls. Um, I feel that Blake has written about walls elsewhere, maybe in the poem, The Garden of Love, from hmm. the Songs of Innocence and Songs of Experience. The, uh, the, uh, I believe it's the garden there is walled off. Hmm. Return to the garden and it's been walled off. So the wall consciousness is present in Blake. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And they're both of, uh, um, separation. Yeah, and the walls definition. are not, they're not positive. Prisons and brothels are not his favorite places. Yeah, I mean, the one thing I, I would note is also stones of law, uh, bricks of religion, that bricks are a, a kind of manufacturing. Mm. Yeah, that's what's um, yeah. You know, you manufacture bricks and you regularize um, that which you can build with stones, which are often irregular, you know, unless you're looking at, you know, some of the stone layout of Machu Picchu or, you know, the Great mm. Pyramids, um, etc. You know, but there's a imprecision in terms of its wall structure, but then you define it, and you get better at it, and you learn how to make bricks, and then it all becomes regularized. Um, would be also maybe a kind of sense of them being the same, and yet brothels are kind of. Um, I mean, what is the what does he mean by brothel? I guess he means sex trafficking, right? A house of prostitution is how I see it. Yeah, and the, the need to go to the brothel if you've been repressed. Yeah, um, it's just it's such a magnet for um, phenomenon where human sexuality is um, pathologized. You build a wall inside yourself to hold back your libido, to hold back your sexuality, and then the wall breaks, and then and you're you, yeah. forced to go to the to the brothel. Where you um, 
may be um, engaged in that pleasure and that freedom, but through the exploitation of another human person. Yeah, in a kind of anonymity or, you know, I mean, I I have no experience, unfortunately, with it. But this, although I did have a roommate who was, I was living in this sort of yogic household, and he was an exact example of this. I, I'm not going to say his name, but he, he, uh, he had what he called the rubber band effect, that he would be a very devout yogi following, because there's a lot of rules in our, our group. And, uh, you know, he had a job that took him out at night. And then once in a while, he just would break down <laughs> and go to a prostitute. And break it was out like the rubber the... band snapped, you know. Yeah. Break out of the prison. Because I out think that's also something. Yeah. Well, just this idea that that we potentially exist ourselves within prisons. The, um, I guess walls or, you know, exterior of which is built of stones of law, you know, built of, what do we mean by law? Um, mm. you know, one can take it, um, in its direct meaning, which is a series of, um, prescriptions for how a group of human beings are to be together that are accepted and we all, you know, abide by as the best we may. Um, but then I also think that, you know, that we take certain um, ideas as real to ourselves and that those ideas or beliefs or um you know, our laws that we lay down unto ourselves mm. form our limitations, form our, um, uh, I would say, just leave it at that, limitations. But that, that's so, also one way in which you can look at what Blake is pointing toward. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting um, how these are the only, I think, the only two uh, proverbs in the collection, in the composite, that are, aren't separated with a period, but really? uh, rather with a comma. Prisons are built with stones of law, brothels with bricks of religion. There was, it's like a, a compound mm-hmm. proverb mm. that there's some um, porous relationship to the two. Causal mm-hmm. relationship or something. Dig it. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. That in other words, he's starting with prisons. And kind of moving on to brothels as if, almost as if prisons become brothels or something like that. Evolve yeah, into I mean, brothels. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if one can carry over what I was saying about, you know, our personal prisons over to that, to the second part. I don't know exactly what that grammar is. No, I think, I think you can. I think when it comes to the prisons that we live in, um, we look for these moments of escape, freedom, and, uh-huh. um, you know, from a, a Freudian perspective, that will often come in a pathological or can come in a pathological or deeply neurotic form. If mm. there's enough repression, if the, if the internal prison house is, you know, has a significantly high and impervious wall, uh-huh. um, all that pent up energy has to find a way of coming out somewhere. And, uh, 
perhaps it leads to the various, uh, contributes to the various brothels of the world. Uh huh. Or the or the interior brothel. Uh-huh. <laughs> the mental, also, like the mental prison and the mental brothel. The mental yeah. brothel, right. But also going back to Pope um, Giovanni Paolo II. You know, that there is a relationship, I get, you know, between religion and sexuality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And kind um, of inverse and, relationships. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that one thesis is that religions emerged out of sexuality, you know, that that is the root of these different um, religions as they've evolved, etc. You know, I, uh, yeah, maybe we better bracket that. But I think that potentially maybe, you know, plasticine man, religious things, and uh, the Venus of um, Dusseldorf. What was the what was her name? Yeah, the Venus of Willen. The Venus of Willendorf. Will uh. the Venus of Willendorf. You know, yeah, you know, one can sort of look to this archaeological record, etc. But um, you know, but the there is um, something in sexuality that's connected to um, to kind of a, what religion points toward. Well, I mean, in a literal sense, there were these temple prostitutes in, uh, you know, so-called pagan pre-monotheist religions, and they, they appear in the Bible from time to time, sometimes in somewhat disguised forms. And... Uh, in other words, sexuality was was literally a part of religion. You would go to the prostitute, the temple prostitute, and have sex with her. Anyway, this is my understanding. And that was sort of a form of worship of some fertility goddess or something. And, uh, and then these monotheist religions banished that demonized, literally demonized that, and then built these brothels, you know, like in a literal sense, they uh, you know, kicked the prostitutes out of the temples, made the temples full of empty holiness uh, like the Holy of Holies in uh, Jerusalem, is nice and empty and masculine, it's just an idea, it's nothing and then where are the prostitutes going to go? They're going to go somewhere and then, then they invent brothels <laughs> totally. And I think that, I mean, for me, listening to you, it appears as though, you know, that um, that Blake is saying exactly that, that within the structure of religion, the bricks of religion, is that it's um, inside of that is a brothel, mm-hmm. you know, that that is the energy of religion, if I... Does that make sense, Andrew? Yeah, that, I mean, yeah, that makes sense, I think. And I find myself thinking about bricks, the regularity and repetitiveness, uh, standardization of them. Yeah. It makes me think, I wonder if he's saying that you go to a brothel and in a sense, it's always the same. You have the same experience. It's a kind of a predictable, you spend the money, you get what you get. Uh, it's as predictable as a brick, whereas the law is somehow different. The law is more like a stone, 
I, I mean, I find myself thinking of law because law is a funny word. It kind of suggests to me like the Dharma, the, the, the natural law. We use the term to mean uh, laws of physics. So laws are inherent the way stones are inherent. Laws exist as part of the universe and stones exist as part of the universe. You don't have to make them. So they have a different, you know, when you deal with the law, you're dealing with something ancient and almost inevitable. Like there really don't have to be brothels if you have kind of sexual freedom. You, there's there's very little need for a brothel, whereas there there always is going to be law. Law is kind of ineluctable. You can't uh, avoid it. I agree, and I think we'd have to look at William Blake's use of the word law, and hmm. you know, with its capitalization. Um, huh. Also, I mean, there are laws. There's um, you know the laws of the known universe. Um, and then there's, I guess, you know, within our Greco-Roman Jewish, you know, Western Civ thing, the sense of law as also being equivalent to, say, the logos or the word or, hmm. uh, you, you know, and, and the complications of how one might uh, interpret that. Hmm. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Can we move to the next one? Yeah. I don't know. I I just really want to... Oh, yeah. Sam never likes so, to move. Yeah, I just feel like... Um, yeah, let's move to the next one. I apologize. I, um, I just feel like, you know, it's such a beautiful, you know, sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I, I think we should move to the next one, definitely, because I think that it, something's going to happen. The pride of the peacock is the glory of God. <laughs> I find myself thinking about the alliteration, brothels with bricks, pride of the peacock. You know, I, I, I don't know how much these uh, alliteration is uh, meaningful or intentional, but it's notable. Mm-hmm. Well, first, I think it's important to point out that um, the peacock is a well-established symbol in Christianity. Oh, yeah. Especially in medieval um, illuminated manuscript, which um, influenced mm. Blake. The peacock is a symbol of eternity huh. within the Christian symbolic lexicon. But what I'm interested in is the possibility that um, he's really actually being very transgressive here. Huh. And, and there's yeah. a... A, a homophonic thing going on that peacock is a reference is a phallic reference. Oh yeah. Um, especially given its proximity to the brothel mm. and a connection, but you know the the positive valuation of human sexuality. Could there could that be? The peacock is the glory of God. The pride of the peacock is the glory of God. Mm. That there's some pro-body, pro-sexuality ethos being established here. Uh-huh. Yeah. I think that's just completely, um, it's a perfect rhyme with what we're talking about. But and I'm, also just, uh, and, and also the, 
the appreciation of pride, which shame is pride's cloak. And and, and uh, this idea that pride is a positive thing, it's not a, a sin, you know, right. kind of goes in the face of how I see Christian uh, theology, ethics. Yeah, and um, cock as a word dates back to the early 17th century. Oh. To the very early 17th century, maybe 1610 is the first mention in the OED, but um, it's probably older than that. You mean in its sexual sense to oh, refer correct. to genitals? Yeah. Yes, right. That's right. Huh. I was reading some book about euphemisms that I, my friend found in the garbage in Brooklyn, and it said that the word rooster is an American euphemism for cock. The Americans couldn't deal with this idea that uh, you had to say the word cock. So they invented this fake word rooster, which is a kind of weird word because I think roosters don't roost. It's hens that roost. But I'm not sure. I don't know much about roosters. In a a kind of breathtaking, baffling combustions moment, this is exactly what you recently said. And I believe that it might have been... Would it have been in our last Proverbs of Hell session, or would it have been um, when we were connecting with the poem Spring? I was talking about roosters. (laughs) Yeah, we talked all about, you know, the uh, avoidance of the word cock, you know, that we needed this euphemism rooster. Yeah, this is super interesting. Like, cognitively... You know, you went back to this trope, maybe unconsciously. No doubt. And three guys talking, they're going to eventually get to Cox, you know. It's kind of like the law, speaking of law, the law of human psychology. Yeah, I guess in terms of Peacock, you know, my question would be, what was the dominant meaning, Andrew? in the late 18th century when I don't, people I don't said know. peacock is that an obscure christian reference or was that a you know a, a given it's a good question i don't i don't have an answer to it but, but definitely worth looking into well i mean the next one andrew that maybe you could read is also but, seemingly um you know tied the lust of the goat is the bounty of god it's interesting the goat i know across um Jewish literature, I'm thinking um, off the top of my head of Leviticus, uh, has a negative status, right? The goat and the goat herd both from Virgil through Jewish literature into Christian literature is um, a dirty animal or an animal that does not have um, a place at the heart of the village. And with the scapegoat, I was just watching some video about Trump being a fascist, and it was talking about scapegoats, and and the the this speaker was saying that the scapegoat you would put all the sins of the village onto the goat and then exile it, 
from the town, and then supposedly the town was now free of sin. And he was comparing it to the way Trump would blame immigrants and Mexicans for all the problems in America. If we could just get rid of these people, we could all be free of sin because they're the scapegoat. Reminds me of the satyrs, right, uh, in Greek mythology. Weren't they half human and half goat? Mm. And yeah. uh, they had a problematic status in that they would uh, rape and pillage and engage in drunken buffoonery, lived in the wilderness, terrorized people, especially women, but men as well, mm. making journeys. They were the um, drinking buddies of Bacchus. Mm, right. Right. Is out of control. Dionysus, the Dionysus cult, uh, where people would go mad and women in particular and just like tear apart a chicken and eat it alive or something. Yeah, the one thing I was going to say is, um, you know, that the goat with its beautiful slit eyes. Oh, yeah. And its demeanor and so forth is often construed with a kind of diabolical nature. Yeah, yeah I think the, the devil, come to think of it, I had these friends when I first flunked out of Cornell. I ended up living in a boarding house in um, St. Petersburg, Florida with my girlfriend. And like my best friends were these two Satanists, and they had painted on the floor, one of them had painted really a lovely pentagram with the uh, the face of a goat superimposed on it. So it was their oh. satanic, personal yeah. satanic symbol. And I think the devil is related to a goat, right? The devil has a little uh, goatee, which is the word that comes from the uh, facial hair of a goat, <laughs> I suppose, right? It's funny, I mean, are there any solid facial portraits of the devil? I mean, I, I would <laughs> say that <laughs> having a goatee might be one of them. I think Baudelaire probably came closest, maybe. But, I mean, who paints portraits of Satan? There are many people who, you know, do paintings of, of Jesus, of, of Christ, Sometimes, you know, take a stab at kind of Yahweh or God or something like yeah, that. That's more but how come, common. you know, how come doing portraits of the of Satan isn't more prevalent? Robert Johnson, the great blues man. Oh, yeah. Um, has a single line that answers that question. Which is? The devil never shows up wearing his own suit of clothes. <laughs> I don't remember that line. I think uh, it's, a, it's uh, an old blues song. The devil never shows up wearing his own suit in his own suit of clothes. Something along and, those lines. And you know that Bob Dylan uh -huh. song. Sometimes Satan comes as a man of peace. Oh yeah, um, Joker man. No, no, it's no, it's, so it's its own song. Oh, it's its own song. Some kind. I think that's the phrase. Sometimes Satan comes as a man of peace. There's a. I don't think. Oh it, yeah. It is might it be serve, on uh, Saved. Is it Serve Somebody off the song, from the song? I don't serve think it's somebody? on Serve Somebody. I think it's on maybe on Saved. Maybe on No Album. There's a great video, or maybe a couple of videos, of Dylan 
touring with with the Grateful Dead, singing that song, and the dead are looking at each other like, "What the hell has happened to us that we are we're the front man for this maniac Christian?" You know. Well, Andrew wrote uh, tellingly about that passage of Dylan's life. I thought it was super interesting. Oh yeah, we got to discuss Andrew's book at some point. I know. Well, I would love to. Um, that book has gotten like you know, like uh, I always I get emails about it. People, I'm I'm happy that people have been reading it more and more. Oh really? It's kind of on the upswing, like. Well, I don't think anything on Bob Dylan is on the upswing. I mean, there's just so much out there. But yeah, I think that it's like um, it's being taught in some um, interesting um, Dylan seminars around. Uh huh. Yeah. I wonder yeah. if that guy at Harvard. Because I read that book, what, what's it called? Why Dylan Still Matters by some guy who teaches Dylan at Harvard. Yeah, Richard Thomas. Yeah, maybe he teaches your book. Yeah, he does. Oh, yeah? Yeah. In fact, he, I I wrote the blurb for that book on the back of that book. Really? I didn't notice Good that. Good way to go, Andrew. Wonderful. Yeah. Wow. You're well, really moving up the Dylanology totem pole. It's all written water. Yeah. <clears throat> now, you know, I totally agree that the devil never shows up wearing his own suit of clothes. What is the, within the uh, antithesis, you know, Christ as the antithesis of Satan, um, the left and right sides of God, etc. Um, with Christ, how does he show up? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Like what well, they didn't, is he uh, wearing? I mean, that, when he I, uh, when he's what's the word resurrected? Nobody recognizes him. They right. walk right by him. It's like who was that guy? What is that? The the road to Aramaeus? Like after he's he that he rolls away the stone. He leaves the cave. I think Mary Magdalene. Some other people meet him. They don't recognize him, yeah. which is hey, weird. It's only through the uh, wounds. That he that that his identity is established. Mm-hmm. The passion wounds from the crucifixion. And he still yes. has. Like, this is maybe plus, the, as we discussed. The you know, he went down and did the harrowing of hell. Yeah, oh, some, yeah. yeah. I mean, then uh, he became unrecognizable. Mm, maybe that's what hell does to you. Like maybe there's a little touch of the devil in Christ through mm. that passage. That suddenly he, he showed up and he there. wasn't himself. He wasn't in his own former suit of clothes so that mm-hmm. Mary Magdalene was unable to recognize him. Or maybe, maybe they're both. Christ, maybe, maybe God and the devil are both tricksters changing shape all the time. Uh-huh. I mean, it's hard to know. I think, and also you hear a voice in your head, like my wife, now that she's a big Christian scientist, she has these conversations with God and, God tells her, you know, what to do about her novel. And, you know, the thing is, you never know for sure if these voices in your head are God or Satan or just voices in your head. <laughs> and maybe that's a metaphor for how they're shifting in shape, you know. It's, it's something we can't know for sure what, who these beings are. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. 
and please join us next time, and remember to stay tuned and strange.